This is the AOS Career Podcast, part of the Bone Bee Orthopedic Podcast channel. The series is hosted by the chairs of the AOS Resident Assembly and features conversations on professional development and growth opportunities within the field of musculoskeletal healthcare. Hi, everyone. I'm Daniel Cognetti, Vice Chair of the AOS Resident Assembly, here again today for another episode of the AOS Career Development Podcast. Research is critical to the advancement of patient care and our understanding of musculoskeletal conditions. It is an important aspect of professional development as residents, fellows, and early career surgeons look to contribute to their profession and advance their careers as they navigate the increasingly competitive process of matching for fellowships and promotion. In this episode, we are joined by Fares Annie, MD, a research fellow at NYU. Happy to be here. And Luis Salazar, a recently graduated medical student from San Antonio who is headed to Rush next year for residency. Great to be here. Thank you so much for the invite. We're going to discuss how to engage in research and medical training and the importance of those efforts. Thanks for joining us. We'll get started. So take me through how each of you have gotten involved with research. My school didn't really have any home program or anything like that for me to network and communicate with people involved in orthopedic surgery research. But I knew I wanted to be involved with a research in a dedicated year after medical school. Uh, during my third and fourth year, I just started emailing attendings and other research fellows if they would take me on. Uh, eventually, during my final year of school, I was able to find a mentor at St. Joseph's Medical in New Jersey, and they were able to teach me about the process and guide me along the way, chart reviewing patients, developing databases, and eventually writing an abstract, finally. And that really helped set me up for my dedicated research year that following spring. I got involved in research during my first semester of medical school. Before that, I did some undergrad neuroscience basic lab work that I actually hated at the time because I wasn't exposed to what I think is more fulfilling side of research that's more clinical. But I emailed my program director. I asked for some research and got involved in research right away. In that meeting, he did mention, you should always have at least one project going on outside of your academic duties. And I think this was incredibly sage advice I think one project is certainly very doable during your first semesters of medical school. And then, as I'm sure we're all aware, research is incredibly difficult to publish. And I think it's just a given that you're going to work on projects and they're going to die or they're not going to be published for whatever reason. And having one project that you're always working on gives you a safety net of sorts for you to still end up with a few publications by the time that you're applying into residency. Luis, I noticed too that recently you published something on how to get involved as a medical student in research. Tell us how that came to be and how people can access that resource. So the document broadly covers how to perform research as a medical student, basic stuff that I wish I knew how to get involved in research, manuscript writing, structuring it, submission and revision. Learning the nuances of research can be very challenging. And a lot of times research is very much just self-taught. And so we wanted to pave an easier path for performing research for those ahead of us. And beyond that, we definitely recognize that with step one, go and pass fail. I think there's going to be a lot more emphasis on other areas in the application beyond your step one score with research being at the forefront of that. And hopefully the document helps future medical students have a much more fulfilling experience with research in the future. And you can find that document on my Twitter page. Thank you for that. So you've both done research years now. Ferris, you're currently finishing up one of your years. I'm wondering if you can start us off and just tell us, what do you think the value is of a dedicated research year? How has that helped you develop skills or develop your application for eventual matching? 
So I think, as Lewis has said, with step one being more pass-fail, more people are looking towards research and a dedicated year, I think, can be extremely beneficial. First off, you learn a lot more about the intricacies of orthopedics, especially in the subspecialty. I've learned a great deal more about spinal alignment and different surgeries than I had in medical school, as well as making connections, getting to know attendings, having them know you, and having someone that could potentially mentor you, as well as advocate for your own professional development. And Luis, how about for you? Can you give us some pointers or what you think was valuable about your research here? Taking that research here and being at the forefront of the research team really builds a lot of leadership skills. You're essentially leading the research team. You're learning a lot of time management skills, learning how to manage multiple projects at the same time, and learning how to effectively communicate and delegate different tasks. So you learn a lot of critical skills that I think I'll certainly use during residency. And I think program directors love seeing that, not just because you're showing a commitment to orthopedics and passion for orthopedics, but because they know that research is way more valuable at building those intangible skills that we just talked about beyond just putting another line on your CV. Those are vital skills for residency, for pushing along an operating room day or a turnover or making sure that clinic flows appropriately. Definitely really applicable. I think the mentorship is super important for networking purposes, mentorship and sponsorship. If you do a really good job on something, somebody's likely to sponsor you and say in the future, I endorse this person and I want them to have this spot. So I think those are all really important. I'm pretty involved in a lot of different sports research, shoulder research. My knowledge of those topics is far beyond my peers. You don't really get any exposure to orthopedics in medical school. So this is a great opportunity to build that fund of knowledge and make you a better orthopedic surgeon. So getting to some other things, Ferris, you noted that your medical school didn't have a lot of opportunity for research. Luis, You've noted some good mentors within your medical school. How do you guys think that people that don't have those high research output institutions behind them, how do they go about getting involved in research or making sure that they can be productive when they do get to an institution like the high output institutions that we mentioned? I think it was Woody Allen that said 80% of success is about just showing up. And I think that totally applies to these departments that maybe don't have as robust research going on as others do. With San Antonio, for example, when I got involved in research, I would just show up to the trauma bay to help out with consults with the residents as much as I could, or I would show up to the OR to build relationships with attendings. I found that once I gained the trust from older residents and attendings in the operating room, I would then ask, hey, do you have any projects going on that I could help out with or take some work off your plate? And that's certainly been super successful for me. And I think beyond that, being in the operating room or clinic with an attending, those environments are so useful for stimulating research questions. We've all been in the operating room and the attending will come across a difficult portion of the case and we'll start thinking out loud. And those are just research questions that you could just start popping off and writing. If it was an interesting case, I would be proactive and I would just say, hey, do you want me to write this up? I could write a quick literature review, send it your way, see what you think. I mean, I wouldn't wait for an attending to ask me if I wanted to get involved in their research. Beyond that, you need a I think take full ownership of every part of the research project, especially in these departments that maybe don't have as robust research help or personnel as others do. A lot of times the research is taking a long time because you're waiting to get approval from some sort of administrator from the IRB, or maybe a medical student is taking a little bit longer than usual to get some data retrieval going. I would just ask the research nurse or research coordinator of the medical student, hey, what can I help you out with? I would make phone calls to whatever administrator was necessary to get the project moving forward. I would just take full ownership of every part of the project. 
I think that's really important. I know in smaller programs, often the research fellow can be doing multiple jobs at once and being able to help and just push projects along with them can be extremely beneficial. In some cases, they'll have access to national databases. There's NISQIP as well as HCOP. And that can be beneficial for smaller programs because the data set is filled already and stats and the idea need to be fleshed out a bit. And I think those are good ways to be a little bit more productive in a smaller program. So we often hear from medical students and I hear from residents myself that they're too busy to get involved in research, that research is obviously time consuming. Ferris, if you want to start, can you both go over ways in which you balance busy clinical duties with research, making sure that one doesn't get neglected or research projects don't get left in the dust? So one way that I went about it early on and saw other medical students doing it was that they would set a time weekly to just focus on their like one project. As you get more familiar with it, develop the skills and go about performing analysis and everything a little bit faster. It doesn't require as much energy overall. And so that's what I've seen work really well for people. And going back to sort of what we talked about is sometimes you'll have people who come into the lab, try and help out a bit, and then they don't follow up and they can leave the project dead. And you can't just sit around and wait for it to get done. You don't know exactly what's going on. But communication is really important in that case in order to just fill out the project. And sometimes you just have to, like, as Lewis described, help them out, making sure that it gets pushed. Luis, any tips you may have? For sure. I think time management is certainly a learned skill. Whenever you add on something to your to-do list, I think you end up sacrificing another thing on the other end. And I think, like Ferris said, the more that you do research, the faster you'll get at it. And then you can start delegating these tasks to other younger and hungrier medical students that, that also want to get involved. And, and that way you're becoming a mentor and you're passing on the skills that you learned. And then you're also effectively time managing your own schedule and getting the project moving forward. My mentor, Dr. Sheehan, is a sports surgeon down here in San Antonio. Use the analogy of bending wood. If you really want to get research accomplished, but balance your clinical duties, it's a constant effort. You can't let things go for months at a time. One other thing we've mentioned that's very frustrating is projects dying, just getting left in the dust. And Ferris, as you mentioned, communication is a big thing. But can you guys talk about how to minimize projects dying? This is like the bane of research existence for medical students, residents everywhere that don't necessarily have control over the power or fully maybe understand a study and you're stuck at some point. Research just tends to ebb and flow so much when you're new to research. It's just something that's no one wants it, but it's just bound to happen, I think. And I've certainly had several projects die because the data isn't good enough or lost a follow-up or whatever. I think as far as tangible ways that you can actually minimize this from happening, barring any external circumstances, I think it just comes down to building on your leadership skills. I love to follow up with people frequently, whether that be my research PI or superior always having that as a motivator or as a sort of checkpoint to have at least some sort of progress every single week. And in the same sense with the medical students that would help me out on research projects, I would frequently text them or call them and just check in with them to see how they're doing. If they needed any clarification on any part of the task, you're keeping the project at the forefront of their mind. Because as we're all aware, we can get buried in the medical school work and academic work that we're involved in. I think it helps get the project moving forward. And in these check-ins, I love also giving some updates on the project. And I've found that whenever I give them updates and let them know that the project is moving forward, I definitely see them a little bit more motivated to, to get their part done and see the project as something that, that could be tangibly written on their CV in the future. 
as you move through potentially a research year, I think some projects end up dying because the researcher gets busy with other clinical duties. Sometimes you don't specifically have enough time to work on it to be the lead, but passing it on to another person who does have time can also be really beneficial because eventually you'll see that project through fruition. And I would say that's an important aspect, especially if you're doing clinical research here or as a resident, say you're involved with projects. If your program has research fellows, make sure that you're communicating with each other in order to push the project along. I think the pass along is great because would you rather have a first author publication that never gets published or would you rather have a second or third author publication that's published? I'd probably take the one that's actually published. I think you guys have hit on some good points that I think about a lot in terms of making sure my research doesn't die. Feasibility is a big one. So when you're evaluating a study, you have to look, is it feasible? Everybody wants to do outcomes research. They want to look at patient reported outcomes, minimum two years data. A lot of places don't have that. Patients don't fill out the data. Patients aren't returning. If you got a 13% follow-up rate in two years, well, that's not really a feasible study. So looking at the large databases, looking at other trends in management, those are more feasible studies. Then you want to be with someone from a mentor standpoint who's experienced in research and knows that they can get this project done because you're going to have success with them too because they already have this pipeline. One other thing I want to talk to you guys about a trauma surgeon at Vanderbilt, he gave me some great advice. He said, as a resident, you should really never work on prospective research because inevitably you're not going to get those things done or they just have a higher failure rate because they take so long to do. You may be gone at that point. So I'm interested. Did you guys get involved in any prospective research studies? Have they been successful? Have you completed them yet? I have not involved myself with any prospective research. I think, like you said, one of my research mentors was very good involving myself in very smart projects that he knew would be publishable within my research year. And so I feel very lucky that he steered me away, even though he is involved in a lot of prospective research, but he didn't put me in those himself. I think it does depend on the institution that you're at. I recently attended the thesis day for the Rush residents and a few of the residents, shout out to them, they completed prospective research during their time at Rush. And so kudos to them. It's definitely a daunting task to do prospective research, but I think it also depends on how robust that research department is. I don't have much experience in prospective research. There are some projects that were brought up in our lab that I thought were just very interesting and I would love to be involved with them at some point. It's more so my own active interests as opposed to having something on my CV or anything, because obviously completing prospective research takes time. I don't know exactly. I can't speak to how often residents are able to complete prospective research. If they're able to start something early on, that they might be able to get it done by the end of the five years. And that would be Fantastic, because prospective research is really how we push science along and innovate in the field. Yeah, that's a great point is prospective research is the lifeblood of science. We mentioned mentorship as a key component of getting involved. Let's talk a little bit more about it. Mentorship comes in many different forms and each relationship is different, but they're all vital to getting research done. Luis, if you want to start off, can you speak to your personal experiences? Sending emails is never a bad start. As a first-year medical student, I sent emails to everybody. Dr. Rajani was one of the first people that I emailed because I saw him as the lead of the program and wanted to get to know him better. And then from then on, I would just show up to the places where it's convenient to have those interactions with attendings because orthopedic surgeons, they're incredibly busy. 
Dr. Rajani is an angel, and I think he was so nice that he was willing to meet with me for 30 minutes just to talk to a first-year medical student. But I think it's way easier and way more conducive to building mentorship and relationships whenever you make yourself available to the attending, whether that be in the OR, like showing up to their cases, helping them out in clinic, or for the residents going to the trauma bay and helping them out with consults. Dr. Dada, who was another one of my biggest mentors as a second-year medical student, my first time in the OR, that's how I built my relationship with him. I just showed up to whatever case was going on that day. I didn't even know how to read an OR board. And he's just so nice that he immediately brought me into the case. Emailing is definitely one of the most important things you can do. It allows you to stay within the forefront of the attending's mind. They can forget. It's easy to forget. But it's important not to be discouraged by that. Sometimes sending emails, like a follow-up email, is definitely worth it. You don't have to see it as annoying. It's just making sure that you follow up with the attending. Something that I often do is go to conferences. I was at AOS the past three years, and I've used that to connect with people and show that I'm interested in their research, interested in how they conduct themselves. And then they are willing to definitely put more investment into you. And I think that's an important part of mentorship. Yeah. I think you guys hit on some good things again there. So how about tools for finding mentors? Things like word of mouth, you guys have used things other than word of mouth. There's some certain databases out there, obviously conferences and things like that. What did you guys use to identify mentors? I don't know that there was a specific resource out there where I found a mentor. I think it really just does come down to showing up to the right places at the right time. As far as finding like a high yield mentor, if you're looking for as much productivity as possible, I think another thing that, that you can do is look up the faculty in your department and you can do a quick PubMed search on their last name and see how productive they are. How much are they publishing research on a yearly basis? You can look up their H index and you could target those specific faculty members for finding mentors. I know OrthoMentor on Instagram and Twitter is huge and I would certainly reach out to him. And I think that website is incredible as well. I think that was an important point. If you have specific interest, you definitely need to be searching for people that are doing that research, but obviously be open-minded if they don't have something in that particular topic going on. If they do say they have something else, jump at that opportunity. As we mentioned, if you have specific interest, emailing people outside of your department across town in neighboring towns, or sometimes even across the country for certain research, I think that's feasible too. There's things like the NIH CRISP database as well, which talks about how much people are being funded for different research. I don't know how much that's relevant to orthopedic research, but if you're someone who really wants to get involved in funded research or has big research aspirations, then maybe looking there is also helpful. We've talked a little bit about how to identify mentors. Identifying any person in general is a difficult task, but what should people look for in mentors? Let's say they get a mentor, but things really aren't working out. What are some things that maybe they want to avoid in a mentor or they should look for in a mentor? Ferris, if you want to start us off. I think one of the most important things you can find in a mentor is mutual beneficence, making sure that they're an advocate for you and that both of you care in seeing each of you advance in your professional life. I think that's something that Dr. Protopsaltis has done for me at NYU. And communication is also a really important part of that, making sure that I get both good and bad feedback on what I can do, as well as being able to bring ideas to him and that they are both open to it and not just their own ideas. And I think that's a really important part. I'll talk about my two biggest mentors. Shout out to them, Dr. Dutta and Dr. Zal. I love those guys. Dr. Dutta, is just incredibly humble, open, and he just has a huge heart. I think he just cares so much. He's helped me out a lot through research and through my research here, we grab beers on a weekly basis. And I think we're good friends now beyond just him being my mentor. 
For Dr. Zell, I think he is incredibly honest, candid, and very principled. I think he's a really good example of the kind of tough love that I admire in my mentorship. I always valued his honest feedback about how I was doing in my research year and what I needed to do to be a competitive applicant and a better researcher. And lastly, I think whenever he says he'll do something, he'll do it. We were talking about this a little bit earlier, but as far as finding a good research PI during your research fellowship or a good mentor in general, you generally want to find individuals that really do care for you on that level, like Dr. Zell or Dr. Dutta, that at the end of the day, I think I was successful in my application season because they went to bat for me. They totally made the phone calls and sent the emails and the communication that helped me match into Rush. And I'm incredibly thankful for them. I've personally worked with Dr. Dutta on some studies and I echo what you would say about his personality. He loves to teach and he does some crazy work in reconstructive shoulder surgery. So people who are doing sort of innovative surgery can make for a great research mentor. And same thing with Dr. Zelly. I had a chance to work with him when I was on a trauma rotation at, at university. He's asking very thoughtful questions, even if he's tough on you at times, like you said, or willing to give you the honest evaluation, I would say don't shy away from people that are going to give you some tough love every now and then. So I think those are all really great points. Dr. Annie and Dr. Salazar, thank you so much for joining us today. I think we've had a really insightful conversation about research, about mentorship, and how to get involved. If listeners want to learn more about this area of professional development and access resources developed by the Academy, they should check out the research roadmap under the research section of AOS.org. And of course, we will link that in the show notes. As a reminder, the Resident Assembly has a research committee which can provide information about grants and promote research opportunities. To get in touch with the committee, reach out to your academy or reach out to your Resident Assembly delegate. Thanks again for tuning into this episode. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AOS Career Podcast, part of the Bombi Orthopedic Podcast channel. For more information on this topic and to hear other conversations on professional development, please visit aos.org forward slash the bone beat.